Hello, and welcome to Thoughts on Money, what we like to call Tom. We're here at the TVG studio, and I'm recording with the producer of all things at the Bonson Group, Brian Tong. Hello, Brian. Hey, Trevor. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Now, did you just say your name, or did you not say your name? I can't remember. Do people know who you are? I think I said my name, Trevor okay, Cummings. Good. All right. Financial advisor. Oh, wait, you can't use the word. That's a word that our compliance department won't let you use. It's a superlative? Yeah. How would you describe me? Oh, let's see. There's just so many words, and I, I can't think of any of them other than short. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> hey, so. Like you said, I got a face for radio. Yeah, you do. Hey, so thoughts on money. How did you ever come up with this whole idea? Yeah, I think the motivation behind it was I've uh, been a longtime reader of David's content, and I love it. Absolutely love everything that David Bonson writes. And I wanted an opportunity to write some of my own stuff. And I think my main motivation was I have a lot of friends that ask me financial questions. And for them, the finance industry is confusing. They say that there's a lot of complex terms. They don't know how to put everything together. And what ends up happening is they kind of disengage from investing altogether. So the motivation was that I could be some sort of a translator, that I could do some research, read a lot of this content, fulfill my own curiosity, and then what greater way to learn than to write. Um, and then that would offer an opportunity for my friends and my family to get a better understanding of how personal finance works and hopefully help them re-engage in investing and help to build a better future for themselves. That was the motivation behind it. So the topics that you select, how do you come about them? Yeah, so ever since I started writing Thoughts on Money, when I started, I probably had like five or six topics. I'm like, these are definitely things I need to talk about. After that, just throughout the week, I talked to a lot of people in the industry. I talked to a lot of clients. So subjects kind of just surface up. When I'm having a conversation, it's it's very often that it'll be a little bit of a click in my brain, like a, a light bulb, and I'll go grab my phone, take a note, and say, hey, this is a subject I want to research. This is a subject I want to write on. I joke around. A lot of times I wake up at like 2 in the morning with this thought. I'm like, oh, that's going to be a great idea. Jot down a couple bullet points and go back to bed. I'm going to be honest. I've written some of these Tom articles all on my iPhone. So just left left thumb, right thumb, and uh, it was pretty tiring. So the goal is you're going to start kind of going once a month to talk about the four Tom issues that you've done throughout that particular month. And so I'm going to start with the first one you wrote earlier in the month of April called Debt Gets a Bad Rap. And, and, and your big question that you ask is that, is debt evil? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And I'm going to press pause for one second. The motivation behind us doing an audio version is that we have a lot of clients and they have preferred learning methods. Some of them prefer to read, some of them prefer to listen, some of them prefer to watch video. So we thought this would be a good supplement for those of you that like to listen. So debt gets a bad rap. The motivation behind this, um, in the past, I've helped out teach finance classes at, at my church. And the curriculum that we usually use, one of the big subjects they talk about is debt and how to get out of debt. Then you hear on the news, corporate debt, student loan debt. It almost is like taboo, like debt becomes a bad word. Like debt was the whole reason that the financial crisis happened and things of that nature. So I think there is truth to those things. I think the problem that it can create is that if you think debt is a bad word, 
then you think all things that go along with debt, everything that comes from debt, um, is essentially evil. And that's not true. There's a way to use debt prudently. And that was what the motivation behind this article is to kind of discuss, hey, when is debt bad? When is it good? And how do you know the difference? You speak about debt and alcohol as a, as a particular combination. I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah, of course. Um, I had a friend that kind of made that analogy. He was talking, uh, he works in real estate, and he was telling me um, when you're looking at these different real estate deals, that uh, if there's too much leverage, it becomes a big problem. And he compared it to, to somebody being drunk. So I like that analogy that um, alcohol itself isn't, I guess, inherently evil. But as we know, We've seen people perverse it by drinking too much, making bad decisions, bad behavior. So I think when debt becomes to a level of what we might call drunkenness, then you probably have a problem. But it's reasonable that maybe you and your wife would have dinner and have a glass of wine. And that's, uh, that's a lot different than drunkenness. Well, you brought up the term leverage. Uh, uh, expand on that a little bit. Yeah, so leverage is a financial term, and if you wanted to translate it, just think about what leverage means. Think about the most simple tool. Uh, you might not be able to uh, lift something very heavy, but if you had uh, a board that you were wedging under it and you had some sort of ballast point, that you could lift something much heavier than you could lift on your own. So going along with that same analogy, when you have debt, you can buy more than you normally could. So the idea of leverage is just to what extent of how much debt that you've taken out. Obviously, if you use too much leverage, you're going to get yourself in trouble, and that's kind of where we got that drunkenness analogy. So tell me, how can debt be good? How can debt be good? That's a great question. So I think where I was introduced to this idea, to give a little bit of the backstory, is I got uh, my master's in business, and when you do that, you got to take a corporate finance class, and we spent probably two or three weeks talking about um, what it looks like when a company has leverage or debt on their balance sheet. We talked about some specific companies. We talked about Apple, and Apple who has more cash than most companies are worth on their balance sheet and how they were issuing debt. And then we went through these calculations on kind of some of the benefits to an institution and how they use it. For me, that was the first time I was like, oh, wow, like there is – there's a way you can professionally use debt, and there's a way you can do it prudently. So you just kind of have to look at what are you using the debt for. In the article, we talk about there's a big difference between when you're using debt to be consumptive versus productive. And what I mean by consumptive, if you go out, let's really oversimplify this. If you go out and you max out a credit card on a bunch of clothes that you don't need, and um, maybe you buy a car that you can't afford, none of those things are going to be additive to your net worth, right? Those things are going to be depreciating. Those things are you're going to consume. Now, on the other end, again, let's use an oversimplified uh, idea. If you go out and you take on a portion of debt to help educate yourself, and that education is going to help you improve your future earnings, well, we can see how we use a little bit of leverage to create a future benefit. Right. I took out a little bit of debt now so I could get this degree or this training or what it might be, and perhaps it added 10% to my future earnings. Well, debt can sometimes sound like borrowing. Exactly. You nailed it. So um, in the finance world, we have a lot of terms to mean the same thing. So debt is borrowing. Leverage is borrowing. Those terms are all synonymous. You kind of use them differently depending on the context and how you're trying to talk about them. 
What's clear that the number one debt that most households have that are really sizable is their home mortgage. You write about questions people ask you, and one of them being, should I ever pay off my home? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it's, what's the right word? I think it's what a lot of people will wrestle with. Because going back to this idea of I have this curriculum at the church, and and his encouragement is for people to pay off their house as fast as they can. Can that be good advice? Sometimes, but let me walk you through when that can be a little bit of a problem. So let's just make up numbers for an easy story. Let's say that I have a million-dollar home that I've paid off, and I have $500,000 of savings, and I'm ready to retire. What part of my net worth, it's $1.5 million, right? I own a million-dollar home, and I have $500,000 of assets. What can I spend? What can I go spend at the grocery store? Part of the $500,000, right? right. Can I spend the million? No, you can't because it's in your home. Yeah, so in the finance world, we call that liquidity. Once all the money has been poured into the home, you you, you lose liquidity. Do you improve your cash flow? Yes, because you don't have a mortgage payment. But when you're making a financial plan, you have to balance that decision between the importance of reducing cash flow expenses and the need for liquidity. I've seen it many times where people are aggressive about paying down their home, but they don't understand their future liquidity needs. What ends up happening is then they have to create a new solution once they get to retirement, and that solution isn't always something that's very attractive to them. I'm not saying that these things are bad, but these are not solutions that they planned on doing. Things like reverse mortgages, um, selling their home and downsizing, taking a home equity line of credit, doing a cash-out refinance. Those aren't things that they intended to do, but they didn't calculate the cost in the beginning, and they didn't understand that there was a liquidity need they were going to have once they get to retirement. And that's where financial planning is pretty important. Not something we can explain in a quick conversation, but when we do the math and we do the cash flow, we can kind of understand what those future needs look like. What was not in the article was talking about something like credit card debt. How would you apply that to this idea that debt gets a bad rap? I mean, obviously, that's that's on the bad side of it because of the interest. Yeah. So when you look at credit cards, very expensive. So let's let's say your average interest rate on a credit card might be, let's make a range, 11% to 22%. That's a pretty expensive way to borrow. The reason it's expensive is there's no collateral behind it. It's unsecured debt. Have I heard stories of people using credit cards in a productive way? Yeah, I've heard stories of guys starting businesses like Airbnb, and they maxed out all their credit cards and, and things like that. And hey, in the long run, it worked out. For most people, that type of debt won't work out. The other thing you got to remember is what do we associate with credit cards? People are usually spending it on consumptive things. So one of the things we talk about in the article is that you need to measure the cost of the debt and compare that to the potential return on investment. If the cost of your debt with like a credit card is between 12 and 22%, you're going to have a tough time finding an ROI to match up against that. So typically, credit card debt, more often than not, will get you in trouble. And ROI is? Good question. Return on investment. Yep. Okay, so we're going to move on to part two. Part two is this idea of risk. Risky business, yeah, Risky it. business. You called it risky business. And I actually really like the photo that we used in this one. It just looks like The reason like risky he likes business. the photo, if anybody wants to know, is that Brian Tong actually titles every one of these articles and picks the photos, which are the two best parts about anything written. So thank you, Brian. You're welcome. 
you know, there's a big difference between being proactive and reactive when it comes to managing risk. That's what you wrote. Expand on that. So let's start out. There's a fun story in here. You and I were, were here when this happened. During 2018, when they were kind of going on tour, talking to they, as I'm saying, the White House, the White House is going on tour talking about these t- potential tax changes. We had the opportunity to host Steve Mnuchin and Ivanka Trump here at the office. We got to take photos with them. She's tall, by the way. She's very tall. And I am short, by the way. <laughs> so we got to host them. Um, and it was a fun experience, but the... The thing that's kind of humorous about this article is that the part that a lot of us found really interesting was the Secret Service, right? They showed up a week before, they looked at all the entrances, all the exits, the windows, the angles, and these guys were on top of it. And I think most of the people that work here at the Bonser Group were fairly confident, tell me if I'm wrong, Brian, that there probably wasn't going to be anything that was going to happen. Right. But it didn't matter that something wasn't going to happen. They were going to be prepared regardless. And I think that brings us to the core principle when it comes to risk management. And I'm going to make up a goofy story here, but if me and you go out to the, the African desert right now and we run around amongst lions, there's a chance that we might get eaten. Pretty right? high risk. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty high risk. There's a chance that maybe nothing happens. But if nothing happens, it doesn't mean that risk wasn't there. And that's the problem is that people go through life and probabilities on your side most of the time. You don't get in a car accident. You don't get critically ill. Those things don't happen. But it doesn't mean that those risks aren't out there. And the problem is if you don't build a plan around how to manage those risks, what ends up happening? You have to be reactive. And being reactive can be expensive. And sometimes the numbers don't even work out. So the whole idea of being a good risk manager is being proactive. Think about these Secret Service guys. They're, they're, they're looking over the architect of our, architecture of our building and looking at all potential risks. You should be doing the same thing with your financial plan. There is a chance for some of us that we might need long-term care in the future. There is a chance for some of us that we might lose our job and we should have X amount of savings set aside during that transition time. We have to run through these scenarios and build these into our financial plan. Why? Because if you don't, it can be detrimental. Well, you know, earlier we were talking about debt getting a bad rap. What about risk? Because there's the upside of risk, right? If you take on a more risky investment, oftentimes it could be paying you back more. Talk about some of those kinds of scenarios. Definitely. So I think you always have to look at that stuff in the context of risk and reward. When you go into a potential investment, and this is the part that can be a little bit difficult, but math comes into play. You have to look at probability and understanding the potential upside and compared to the potential downside. Do you do that with historical data or? or Definitely. You you look at historical data and you're trying to find out two things. What's the probability versus a gain and a loss? So that's a percentage terms a lot of the times, right? And then with that loss, how big could that loss be? Now, for conversation's sake, we can use long-term care as an example. There's an expense to it, right? So there's going to be a monthly expense for someone that wants to ensure that if they had to go into a long-term care facility, that it would be paid for by an insurance company. It can be a little bit expensive, the monthly costs and all that. The reason it's expensive is that there's a high likelihood that a lot of people will need it. The other thing is a lot of those premiums are variable. 
because the insurance company isn't knowing exactly what that cost is going to look like in the future. They're hedging themselves to make sure that if longevity risk changes, if care facilities change, that they have an adjustment there. We can do all of our due diligence and understand what the cost of that type of insurance could be, and we might come to a conclusion if it's a lower probability event that we might what we call self-insure. But going through that process is so important because then we've made a conscious decision in our financial plan on how we want to handle that potential risk. Just like the Secret Service guys, you've got to believe that if the guy's spending a week out here before, he is playing every scenario out that he could possibly think of, preparing his team to how to respond. Is that what you're referring to when it comes to putting together this risk management plan for your money and your finances? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Um, I'm talking about having a team of professionals around you, financial professionals, that are looking at all scenarios. And a lot of the time, you don't know what you don't know. So sometimes with a client, I can introduce, hey, this financial plan that you've been running along so far, it works good, but let me show you a couple blind spots on potential risks that you might not have looked at And if one of those things was to happen, I want to show you what it would mean to your plan. Because sometimes when you're able to calculate or show the pain, it helps people be more motivated to pre-plan and um, have a more robust risk management strategy. So you talk about that by saying focusing more on the process than the solution. Yeah, of course. So when I'm talking about focusing a lot more on the process than the solution it kind of goes back to what I just talked about. There's a chance that you're going to find that maybe you don't purchase insurance for something or that you're still going to go along with this investment that has some embedded risk. But the whole process of deciding whether you're going to do that or not, not, you're going to learn a lot about yourself. You're going to learn a lot about that potential risk. And you're going to see how that works in concert of your financial plan. So there's so much growth that comes from going through that process and having those conversations. Because it The idea of this is to make sure that there's no surprises. Yes, life is full of surprises, and we know that those things are going to happen. But if your expectation is that there is going to be surprises, and you have these um, fire drill scenarios that you've worked out. Contingency plans. Exactly. You nailed it. That's that's going to be much better. And behaviorally, it's going to help you act better in those times. Which brings us really to the next issue that you came up with that's pretty much along really similar lines to that. But I'm going to take a break. Welcome back to Thoughts on Money, Tom. This is Trevor Cummings here with Brian Tong. Hey, so Trevor, that next installment was this one called The Business of Chance. And it's probably one of my favorite ones out of the some now 40 of these that you've put together because it's such an amazing story that... There's a movie going to be made about this particular story, right? Yeah, I had so much fun writing this story. It's such an interesting piece. Uh, I shared with a lot of friends that there was uh, one author that wrote a 10,000-word piece, and a couple of my friends read it because it's so captivating. I, I Not only a movie, I hope they write a book about it. Yeah, for sure. So let's get into it. Let's let's First, let's talk about that particular story and then the impetus of what it is that you wrote about that story and you related it to some finance issue here. Of course. So you've got this couple, um, the Selbys. They are your classic American homegrown family out of Everett, Michigan. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I think it's less than 2,000 residents. Correct. 
And this guy has a pretty interesting career. He worked at Kellogg's. He was doing some science behind the insulation of cereal boxes and different things like that. And the interview with his wife, Marge, she talks about how he's always been a numbers guy. And he's always trying to solve puzzles, and he's looking for puzzles all around him. So at one point, I think they retired. They started a liquor store, and he saw this advertisement for a new lottery game in Michigan. I think they called it Windfall. And when he was looking at the numbers, he realized that they made some mistakes on how they were going to compensate the winners, and there was a way to put the odds in your favor. So without getting into too many of the details, basically what happened, there was this jackpot. You had to pick, I think, six correct numbers. You were picking on between 1 and 49. And then if nobody won. If nobody won, it rolled over, and the jackpot would then get paid out to people that picked five numbers, four numbers, three numbers, so on and so forth. Obviously, you get a bigger payout if you had more correct numbers. What ends up happening is when that money rolled over to the lower numbers, it skewed the probability to where it was in your favor. And I don't know the exact numbers, but let's say it was even in your favor, like 52%. What they realized is the way the law of large numbers works. If they could buy enough tickets, that small margin of favor would play out to where they would win every single time. Or the probability was so high that even when they did lose, they felt confident they could just come back and they would make those winnings back over time. Exactly. And they were super strategic about it. The, those rollovers might have happened, um, we'll have to look back at the article, but maybe like 12 times a year. Those are the only times they would participate in the lottery. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when they did, they'd participate big. Big. In the beginning, it says that the husband, I think his name is Jerry, he was going out and he was buying smaller portions to kind of like just test his theory. And mainly to hide it from Marge. <laughs> mainly to hide it from Marge, exactly. But once he figured out it worked, I mean, he had his lawyer, his CPA, his friends, his family, they made like an investment club. An LLC? Yeah, they made an LLC, exactly. And they were buying, I think they were buying like a half a million dollars worth of tickets. Half a million dollars, that's right. Craziest part is they were having to print the tickets one at a time. And I think the tickets cost like a couple dollars. So they were spending like 14 hours in front of a lotto machine. And uh, Marge would go to one place, her husband would go to the other place. Uh, it, it was crazy. So much so that it caught the attention of... Of the state. Yeah, of the state, but it also caught the attention. Um, well, yeah, caught the attention of the state. They ended up shutting down that lottery. They loved doing this so much, the Selbys. Then they started driving to um, Boston or Massachusetts yeah. somewhere yeah. where they basically had a similar um, game. It was called the same game. It yeah, was it was like, thing. yeah, exactly. It was their Massachusetts version of it. Funny thing, um, Jerry doesn't like to uh, fly, so you drive there. 14 hours, then spent 14 hours in front of a a lotto machine. But then he found competition. There was a group from MIT that were doing it. It was was just a crazy story. Uh, The craziest part is he ends up winning, like, I think, what is $27 million of gross uh, gross winnings. He might might net out a lower number because there was the cost of the tickets and things like that. But granted, he became a multimillionaire from playing this game of chance. And he turned it into a business. That was what the whole article was about. 
So you talk about how math matters as well as gambling versus investing, which was kind of the cornerstone of what the point you were trying to make. I had to make an excuse to write about this, so <laughs> I had to pick some takeaways on uh, what we could learn about investing. Yeah. But yeah, you hit it on the head. The first thing I mentioned in there is that Jerry had a, like a very sound plan. He wasn't playing the lottery every week. He was playing it only when the odds were in his favor. And then the second part I talked about was the reason math matters is he did all the calculations, and he says even in there, every week after they were going through thousands of these tickets and looking to write numbers, he did a risk-reward calculation again to make sure that they were still on the right track and that he understood how everything works. So that's where I'm kind of drawing this line on the difference between gambling and investing. There are so many people, friends, family, people I come across that get excited about gambling on the stock market. They get excited about buying this hot stock here and trading it then and day trading and all these things. That's not investing. And we have to be able to bifurcate those two things to understand the difference between gambling and investing. The reason I love this story is that the lottery seems like a platform that you'd be gambling on, but they were investing on. The stock market seems like a place that you'd be investing, but most people are gambling. And that's kind of what I wanted to show in this article. Well, yeah, you know, people call it playing the lottery because it really is like a game if you look at it like that because the chances of you winning are really so small that people just enjoy the idea of playing the lottery. But in this case this business of chance that he went into, he turned it into an investment of chance, if you will, because the numbers bore it out. And it did over several years, right? Uh, no, definitely. Yeah, over several years. And also, I think the interesting takeaway to think about, too, is what was everybody else doing with those lotto tickets? They were gambling, right? But then you have this couple from Michigan that were doing it as a business, and who do they meet up with? These students from MIT, these math wizards. And that's what you get when you come to the stock market. If you're trying to gamble, try to invest a little bit now and make riches and things like that and, and make a big turnover in your portfolio, guess who your competition is? Your competition is these MIT graduates and things like that. So people need to remember when they come to, to the stock market, they got to understand who they're up against. That's great. So the last one is another favorite of mine because I like the stories you tell, Trevor, and this one's called Misguided Mary. It's a pretty personal one for you, isn't it? Yeah, I remember To Protect the Innocent. Her name's not Mary, but we used Mary so we can have this conversation. But I remember when I first met Mary, she is such a kind-hearted person that, like I, I talked about, she just lights up a room. Like, you meet her, she's memorable, she's smiling, She's your grandmother. You want to take care of her. So when I met with her, one, I was excited to help her. Two, I was so distraught when I saw how she was cared for by her former advisor. Really miscared for, right? Exactly. And when I say that, somebody listening, their assumption be like, oh, he probably like elder abuse or they charge her a bunch of commissions. It wasn't that at all. This advisor, um, who I knew because he worked at a former office I, I worked at, had kind of a quirky personality, and he had a little bit of a pessimistic bent to him, and it drove him to invest in a certain way. And I can understand if he invests his own money that way, but it spilled over to where how he invested his client's money. And this portfolio was unbelievable. He was basically shorting the market. He's what, buying. What does that mean, shorting the market? 
without getting into too many details, when you're shorting the market, you're going to benefit when the market goes negative. I see. So um, if the market was to go down 20%, that would be in your favor, and your investment would benefit from that. So all of his positions would benefit from a negative outcome. I think that's the key word, right? All. All. Yes, exactly. I think you, when you and I talked about it, you talked about this idea of the singularity, that there was just one singular focus on how this portfolio was constructed. And it was constructed on a theory that was very much divorced from reality. Could this have been a good portfolio in 2008? Yeah. For that one year, this would have been a great portfolio. But to have it in 2009, 10, 11, 12, it was detrimental. We, we saw this comparison on how Mary's assets were depreciating, while even just the most common diversified portfolio would have greatly benefited from what was going on in the marketplace. You actually called this particular kind of portfolio the name of one of my favorite movies. Your favorite movies, Armageddon? One of, one of my favorite okay, movies. Fair I enough. Mean, you know, I mean, I, Princess Bride. Yeah, of course. That's everybody's favorite, right? So I think I, I use that term kind of jokingly, but... It makes sense, though. It's an important one to remember because there's people that have come to me and they have these theories and ideas on how they invest. I don't want to point to any strategy, but they might be gold bugs or they might be have this particular bent on kind of politics and things like that. And those things are fine, but there was... what What is this book called? I think it's called The Triumph of the Optimist. And it's a stock market book. Or there's the book by um, Jeremy Siegel called Stocks for the Long Run. And it's this idea that you have to be a long-term optimist when you're an investor because it's in your favor. We go back to the, that last article about odds. Odds are that the market is going to be positive. On a daily basis, it's like a 52% chance. You zoom out to like a 20-year time period, it's like a 99% chance it's going to be positive. You are going to be swimming against the current if you try to take this very contrarian, non-consensus, negative, pessimistic view on what the future of the world is. But that's not to say that some people have done very well shorting the market. Yeah, there is. Those people are famous. There is a, a few famous investors that have done really well, but they didn't do well because they had this negative outlook on the general market. They did really well because they were able to do what you might call like forensic accounting and be able to spot companies that were mispriced. So there's one famous investor that did all his due diligence and research on Enron, and he knew that was a fraud before it happened. Another movie that's really popular is The Big Short, right? right. Those guys did all their due diligence, and they found an isolated investment that was the pricing of it was broken. And they were able to benefit from that eventually playing out, that thesis that they had. So these people aren't saying that the whole market is doomed. What they're doing is they're finding little mispricings in the market, and they're trying to express that with a particular trade. And a lot of the time, they're levering that trade, like we talked about with debt. They're levering up that trade so that they can greatly benefit from it when it comes true. So when we go back and talk about Mary... Uh, what did you do to help her out of this predicament? Because by the time you had actually gotten to her portfolio, it sounded like she missed out on a lot of the gain that she could have already had, right? Yeah, and, and that's difficult because what can you do about spilt milk, right? So I think where I started with Mary is first just kind of understanding, hey, Mary, what are your goals? 
if you were able to wave the magic wand, what outcome do you want with this portfolio that you've built for yourself um, or that your advisor had built for you? And what I looked at was what her description was and what her expectations were. And then I just educated her in showing, hey, these are what your expectations are and these are what you're looking to achieve. But this is what the, the outcome that your portfolio is looking to achieve. And that disconnect between those two, I think it was educational for Mary and helped her. And then what we did, we transitioned the portfolio into something that was much more suitable for what she was trying to achieve. I mean, let's be honest. I don't want to spend a ton of time talking to her about how I wish we would have met five years earlier. There's no, there's no benefit from that. But what I did want to do is help her to pivot and redirect in a direction that was in line with what her financial goals were. So the point of this is how do we keep from being led astray? Are there things that you can give as tips to basically selecting your advisor, if you will, to not be put in a situation that is like this? It's a really good question. So my solution for most people is that we all do, and this is a scary thing to recommend, but we do all have some level of intuition. And I tell people, if it smells fishy, if it, if it looks a little bit goofy, then you need to dig in. You need to ask some questions. You need to lean into your common sense. And you might bring alongside of you a, another person and get a second pair of eyes. As a financial advisor, I spend some portion of my day reviewing portfolios that other advisors built and I'm that second pair of eyes. I'm giving feedback to that investor to say, here's three things I like. Here's one thing I don't like. Here's three things that are really good. Here's one potential risk that you might not have seen. So you have that ability. You are the client. You are the customer. You are the lifeblood of somebody else's business. So you have the right to go and, and get other opinions, just like if you were going to go to a doctor, right? If you are going to get a exactly. big surgery... You want to vet out multiple candidates and make sure that um, it's the right fit for you. And if you're in a doctor's office, even if they've got their degree on the wall and things like that, and you're like, this doesn't seem right, then you have to listen to that little voice. Well, this has been great, Trevor. Congratulations on your inaugural podcast here. Looking forward to doing it again. Thank you. I appreciate you joining me. So you were uh, the motivation for a lot of this content, and uh, you've definitely walked alongside me to make sure that we produce great things for our readers. So I appreciate you. Great. Well, let's say thank you to your audience. Thank you, audience. And cheers to all you Tom readers. Until next time. Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team at Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. 
The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.